Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Mullcast. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, we're going to start with the most exciting game of the weekend, 21-all draw between Munster and Racing, which uh, in many ways could end up being a very poor result for Munster. But it was a great game and uh, the start of the Chris uh, Latham, Larkham, Larkham, Larkham revolution. S- Stephen Larkham. Stephen Larkham. <laughs> <laughs> the Latham, the Latham <laughs> revolution. I mate. love Latham. <laughs> Stephen. The start of the Stephen Larkham revolution with Munster, I felt running at spaces rather than faces. Uh, but very clutch moment at the end, and the man who had a great game at out half, JJ Hanrahan, did not deliver the Elgara shaped goods, and he hooked his drop kick very poorly wide. It must be said. Yeah, it was a bad miss. I felt sorry for him because I thought he had a superb game. Uh, his 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 general play was brilliant. His goal kicking was outstanding. Um, his lines of run, like he was up against a player who was playing one of his rare, you know, perfect 80 minutes, Finn Russell, who was blindingly good. Uh, but JJ Hanron didn't pale in comparison. I, I felt he compared, you know, not favorably, but he compared well. And I thought he orchestrated the Munster backline really well. That was a, I enjoyed the game so much. Um, I was saying to, saying to you, Andy, that it was the, one of the most enjoyable games I'd seen since the Challenge Cup final at the end of last season, which was another cracker. And I felt that this had uh, had sort of elements of, of a, a knockout game. It didn't seem like a pool game to me. And uh, By the time it ended, it took me a, a couple of minutes to realise, oh, like a, a home draw isn't a good result for Munster. It, it just felt like that was a cracking game. And... It didn't feel like it had happened in the context of the Heineken Cup pool. It felt like it had been a one-off. I felt that the standard of tries scored was it wasn't a dud amongst them. You know, it was a superb attack and play. Finn Russell's obviously a glorious solo effort. Teddy Thomas's first was uh, an amazing, an amazing, you know, an amazing finish. He made it look like it was inevitable when that sort of thing is incredibly hard to pull off. Similarly with Keith Earls. They pulled that off so slickly. Uh, the three handlers in the Munster backline. So it was Hanrahan to Haley to to Earls, I think. Uh, and it was as slick as you like. Uh, I thought that it had a, a, there was an awful lot of uh, competition at the front. I felt that the, I haven't seen a Munster line out malfunction as badly as that really ever. They were poor against Racing in the semi final couple of years ago as well but this was this was I think probably in terms of the, the numbers it was even worse uh, but on the other hand you know up front it was a you know it was, aside from that it was a 50-50 battle thought Jerry Lockman played very well until he went off Scanlon did like it's you know they all most, most players played very well it was a cracking game really enjoyable watch I wondered if uh JJ's 
late miss was it was a sliding doors moment for him because he's one of the guys he was one of the original five ups so the five ups are a series that uh, they it, it, we started with the 2012 team and the idea was to look at guys on an annual basis now just events and life happening and all that sort of stuff so we never I never continued it, but I will go back to it at some stage. There's been obviously a few twists and turns along the ways. Uh, Stuart Oding, I guess, being the oh, most yeah, storied. Um, but JJ was one of the original ones, and one of the uh, accidental traits of that was that it was a guy from each province and, you know, a fifth guy who'd have two years. Anyway, JJ, um, during, I think, at the end of year two, so in, in 2014, Moved to Northampton, and it was, mm, is this a good num? Is this a good move for him or not? Now it turned out that it was not a good move for him. Um, he was at the at the end of that un, uh, 2014 season. He had shared pretty much, uh, you know, shared stars with Ian Keatley. He he was uh, he was a native guy. He'd been in the top three of the young players. He was a direct peer of Paddy Jackson's, so he finished in the top three. I think Serpentine won it in in that year, the World Junior Player of the Year. Um, and JJ was a, a nominee yeah. on the back of playing really well at the Junior World Cup. Um, Ireland beat South Africa. 2012. Um, this is 2012. Yeah, and his move to Northampton meant that he disappeared off the radar and it kind of meant that he wasn't really coming home as the prodigal son he was kind of coming home with the tail between his legs and then when Carberry moved to Munster all the talk was about Carberry like it, it trying to trying to choose exactly the right word it it a lot of people still ask the question about Carberry sort of assuming that he is like deep anointed successor to Johnny Sexton and in a lot of questions like that like you know is, is the next Six Nation too soon for him like if he wasn't injured like is it just time to jettison Sexton and pick Carberry and they're gone there's nothing I have seen from Joey Carberry on a consistent basis that will, that will convince me that he is um, ready for that mantle at all he is uh, probably the most enjoyable player in Ireland to watch but that's very different from being you know, starting test number 10. So I was curious that what would happen if Hanrahan put together a really good series of games playing for Munster at number 10 while Carberry was injured or while Carberry was away. And I think had he got that drop goal at the weekend... No, oh, it would have changed the narrative entirely. It would have changed. And like, there, there would have been a big change in there and people would have started asking, God, like, you know, do, do you play Carberry at 15? You know, how do you get them both in the team? Haley's um, played well, though. Haley played extremely well in the yeah, day. Yeah, and I, I, I wonder how significant it would be for him um, in, I guess, the narrative in the way the teams are selected in, in how he's viewed. Because to go back to it, he's the same age as Paddy Jackson. Same age as uh, Jack Carty as well. Mm. Just to uh, pick up on your point about narratives, um. The narrative about uh, JJ has been sort of a guy who has never really hit the heights. But Munster have had a lot of average outhalves in the time that he's been away and waiting for a game. And you have the example then of, say, Albie Matheson, who's getting a very big farewell. I think Munster really talked to him, and Van Fran really talked to him. But he's another example of a, like guys getting in the way of Munster producing any players, which is a question we we touched on two weeks ago when we were talking about 
the production line. Like, JJ Hanrahan didn't get a fair crack at it yeah, first time around. Yeah, Hanrahan spent a lot of time playing at fullback in his second year but before he left, sort of, so 2014, um, which was which was an issue. You know, he, I think he moved between three positions in that that season. Anthony Foley was in charge. It was like 10, 12, 15. And it, the idea of him going or taking up the opportunity with Northampton was that he was going to play. He hoped to play one position. He wanted to play at half. You know, we've heard before Carberry talk about that was his position of preference. Um, yeah, like Albie Matheson has been a, a great pro. Like Van Gran was unstinting in his praise of what a, an exemplary pro he was. And I have nothing against Albie Matheson. He is a good player. He was better than Murray when he came on at the weekend. I, I don't think he was blocking anybody. Like, I, I don't think in the time that Matthewson was there that there was a potential Irish scrum half knocking on the door, like an Irish international scrum half knocking on the door. Like, he was there to cover Murray when Murray was, sorry, he was there to cover for Murray when Murray was unavailable. He covered for Murray. Murray started big matches. Matthewson didn't. Uh, Matthewson arguably bettered him during that period. So I, I don't think he was blocking, but I think with, I, I go back to it, like with Craig Casey coming into the frame, um, and then with the IRFU very staunchly having this, um, you know, they don't they don't want to pick, they don't want to fill in like six or seven non-Irish qualified guys into a provincial team. Matheson just just doesn't fit. So like I, I guess that'll be that. There, I think the 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 interesting thing in hindsight, or one one of the aspects in hindsight of Hanrahan getting selected in multiple positions was how poorly. Again, to go back to that idea, it was messaged to the media. It was the it was given to him because shortly after the idea of like Bowden Barrett played at fifteen this World Cup, obviously being the most high profile guy. So that idea of guys moving between ten and fifteen, which I, I'd have poo pooed uh, a few years ago, I'd have gone like, no, 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 yeah, like you have to specialize. But Damian McKenzie is doing it. Joey Carberry is an option. That there's there's a few guys now. Who um who can do? We've talked about Elliot Daly moving. So all of a sudden, like this, this is an option. Uh, but that was that was never adequately communicated. That that's what they were looking for from Joe uh, from from JJ Hanrahan. Um, whereas in hindsight, you go, no, like maybe it was a good use, but he didn't seem to believe it, and it it never really spread wings again. And that idea of the narrative. Yeah, I I agree. He didn't seem to believe it. But it's the same with Carberry. Carberry thinks that 10 is a more important position than 15. I want, well, that's my reading of it. Maybe I'm incorrect in reading his mind. Uh, but it, I want to be a 10. Hanron wanted to be a 10. He wasn't happy, didn't want to be a 12 outside Rog, which I think would have been a great uh, apprenticeship for him. And certainly didn't want to play 15 at the time. He was um, 10 outside Keatley, though, wasn't he? Wasn't Rod, Rod Rod was still there. No, Roger's still there in, in Hanrahan's first year uh, after oh, the yeah, World yeah, Cup. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he's he's back playing 10 now, um, his favorite position. And I was really impressed with him. I was a huge fan of Hanrahan during the 2012 Junior World Cup. I felt that he had performed much better in that tournament than Paddy Jackson had in either of the three tournaments he'd played in previously. And uh, I had a huge hopes from him. And I'm still very, uh, I still look forward to seeing him come close to fulfilling his potential. Just because you're not an international by the time you're 24 
doesn't mean that you shouldn't be an international when you're 27 or 28. I think if you're playing extremely well, you can force your way and you certainly should be able to force your way into national selection. And then it's a case of playing well enough to take a jersey and then playing continuously well to keep it. Or if you don't play well, you lose it. Uh, to go back to the idea that Munster didn't get a good result, even though they sort of they did pull the draw from the jaws of defeat, um, a lot really hinges on the question of how seriously Saracens are going to take this tournament. The whole group hinges on how seriously Saracens take it. Yeah. So given that um, Saracens are continually under investigation, it seems like a, their, their trouble isn't going away. Um, and Munster have to go to Saracens away and Rassing away. Mm. Do you think they'll get out of the group? I do. I do. Uh, I surprised myself with that answer, how confident I was. Uh, Rassing away is going to be very tough for them. Saracens away is tough for anybody. It doesn't matter if Saracens don't have their full complement of players, which I do think that Saracens will roll out their complement of players at home. But even if they don't, Saracens are so well coached. It's not just a matter of talent. It's how well organized they are and what a, an outstanding team culture that they have. So that away fixture might be more like playing a Saracens in, say, 2011 than it would be like playing against an all-conquering Saracens team. But that's still a hard match. Uh, yeah, I, I, of the 10 matches at the weekend, home teams won seven of them. And the only teams to win away were Leinster and Northampton in the same pool. So they're in strong positions for the, the th- you know, the, there's two teams go through from three of the pools, uh, which makes a second place team going through from Munster's group difficult. Uh, not impossible though. Um, so I, I, I expect, I expect Munster to go through. As well. Uh, Where are they picking up the big away win they'll need to sort of to shake up the group if they've already dropped a vital home win? Their only remaining home game is, well, well, they have two home games left, but like Saracens and Ospreys, but they have to play two really hard away games. Yeah, I think that that they will beat Saracens. I just think it's going to be a really tough game. And I think they'll beat Racing. Um. You seem to be more impressed by Munster than you have been in quite some no, time. I was very, no, I was very impressed with them. Um, there wasn't, like I looked down through the team and I was, uh, Murray was possibly like their biggest underperformer, their, their worst player. I, I feel that they're a little less reliant on CJ Stander now. I thought that Peter Manny got early in the game, got a couple of carries under his belt and looked uh, more explosive than he had at any stage this season. And I don't think he's played badly this season, but he's not carried well for fucking donkey's ears. Um, Ty Byrne is always very good. Jerry Lachlan's good. And then, but the really, the real difference came in some of their, uh, some of the, how they attacked with and held depth and then hit the ball at pace. Uh, I, I still don't think that Chris Farrell, is a reads the game as well as you know a number of other centers in Ireland. I think he holds on to the ball a bit too much, which sometimes is no harm. He's six foot four and seventeen stone, 
but sometimes it's bad decision making. I don't think his decision making is is particularly good. But uh, Conway's obviously in outstanding form, and Mike Haley is the real uh, the huge turn up for me. In that, I wasn't impressed with him. I I under like he's a diligent, he's a diligent, hard working player. Last season, he got an awful lot of starts, twenty six starts, all of them at fullback, and I felt that. He's a guy who performs reasonably well, but very rarely above that. Whereas in this game, just like Will Addison had the previous night for Ulster, he looked very sharp. He looks faster than he did last season, far more confident. And I felt that his running uh, and overall positional play, he was always in the right play, made him the standout fullback on the pitch. A lot of talk about Zebo before and afterwards, but he wasn't even the best player in his position in Tolman Park that night. Well, let's uh, pivot around Will Addison uh, into the Ulster match. There's another contender for a guy who hasn't had much international honours, but there's no reason why he can't get them in his late twenties. John Cooney's the best out half or best scrum half in Ireland at the moment. No, questionably, he's putting the team on his back, scoring wonderful solo tries, kicking all the points. Uh, surely he'll be starting number nine in the Six Nations. Should be. Yeah, I'd agree. I think, yeah, best number nine in Ireland at the moment. And for, like, he's been on the top two for, you know, two and a half seasons. He's been, his 2017-18 season was absolutely outstanding. His 18-19 season wasn't quite as good, but it was still very, very strong. Both years he was selected to that, uh, Magners, that's what it's called, the Pro 14 Dream Team, which takes a very wide group of selectors. I think there's 75 selectors from the six countries involved so while some people may look down their nose that if it doesn't suit their argument it does suit my argument uh, and I think he was well deserved it I think he's clearly playing better than Conor Murray played better than Conor Murray last season and was a very close second to Conor Murray the previous season so yeah he's without, without a doubt he'd be starting in the Six Nations were I selecting the team and, and I think there's there's um, there's probably a tendency to look at um, the World Cup in four years' time and go, certain players aren't going to be around, so they should just be dropped. Like, we shouldn't pick Johnny Sexton at number 10 because he's not going to be around in four years' time. And now's the opportunity to throw in, like, Carty, Carberry, and Billy Burns, Hanron, Stephen Fitzgerald. Like, you know, which is, to my mind, patently ridiculous. Like, I don't think you should be giving out soft caps. Like, I think the guy that should be getting picked and... The the best example I think of, t- to my mind, is um, Chris Henry. Chris Henry was, at the time, the best man for the jersey, and he'd earned it. And he played really well. Like, he, he was in great form, so he, he was a great example of like, picking a guy at the top of his game who was confident, who, who did the job for you, who you could rely on. He was never going to be like a long-term solution. He was never going to be Sean O'Brien or, or David Wallace, Obviously, um, but I do think there's an argument for, for for picking a guy like that. Now, I don't think there's an argument for picking a guy ahead of Johnny Sexton when Sexton is obviously the best number ten in Ireland. Like, I just think you're, I just think you're trying to prove a point, and you're you're trying to like exonerate ghosts that aren't there. And like you're, you know, through like oh, throw her in, throw her into the water. If she drowns, she was a witch. You know, if she or like you know, she wasn't a witch. If she does. She doesn't drown like burner, you know. Like it's you know, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna get the you're gonna get the results you want, you know. Like it's it's 
was Dark Ages stuff. Um, speaking a bit more broadly about Ulster, uh, they've had two really exciting games where I think they haven't played very well at all, but have still won both. Claremont of them. were absolute crap up in Ravenhill. They, I haven't ever seen Claremont play that bad. But no, once. Remember that game they played against Saracens when uh, Brock James batted the ball into touch and goal and they ended up losing 40 points to sixes. Semi-final. Oh, yeah. That was the last time I can remember Claremont playing that badly, which was like a huge nadir. They were dreadful against us. Ulster should have put 30 points in them. Like the fact that the, Claremont got a losing bonus point in that. They should have been nowhere near them. They just didn't, didn't fucking bother. Well, is that because, as the theory has been propagated by Simon Hicks and Shags Horgan, only the Irish care Shags. enough about this tournament? Again, that's no, not go, something. Go hard in them, it's, it, like you said you would. <laughs> I think it's one of these kind of backward-looking excuses that you, you you try to filter it in. Like if, if you look at the teams that have won the Heineken Cup, Saracens, Toulon, Leinster are, are the recent champions. That When the Scarlets were at their pomp, when they had a really, really good seasons, they reached the semi-final. Like this, there's no gimme teams are picking up Heineken Cups because no one else cares. And this is, it's in the same vein to, you can't have strong provincial and a strong national team. You, you just find an argument that fits in with whatever your prejudice is to explain away. Teams started going downhill when Joe Schmidt announced he wasn't going to be there. That's yeah. actually not untrue, but it's not, it's, it's not causation. It's just correlation. Yeah, so... I don't. I, I think that the Irish teams um, probably focus on it, probably probably handle it better. That there's probably um, certainly certainly Leinster handle it really professionally at this stage. Like a very experienced Leinster team that's been in the last two finals. I think then that that Munster and Ulster have enough collective experience of doing really well. Like Toulouse have enough experience. Toulouse going across to Gloucester. And being down double digits at halftime and coming out just sort of going, oh, it's inevitable that we will win. We are like European aristocrats and you are Gloucester. Mm -hmm. And Gloucester wanted to win that match. Like Gloucester had a big crowd down. Gloucester expect, and nah, just to lose win it. So um, I think it, nah, I just, I think it's a great tournament. I think that, I think it's just self-flagellation that we had a bad World Cup and that, don't take any solace from us being in Heineken Cup because it doesn't really count. Like that's exactly what I I agree to. I that's you put it nail in the head there. Nothing can be good because we didn't do particularly well in the World Cup. Ah, fuck off. Look, look, go back to Saracens and go back to the English team. Who plays for Saracens? Maro Atoje, uh, Billy Vunapolo, Maka Vunapolo, Owen Farrell. Uh, they're the obvious guys. I mean, Alex Good. Alex Good isn't in the English team, but I mean, he can't be far off. Uh, Brad Barrett played in the last World Cup. Um, the, the South African prop, whose name I can't remember, is it Cock? Yeah. Like, who came on in the World Cup on playing for the, the Springboks? Like, he plays for them. But they all did really well in the World Cup. So, nah, I don't, nah, don't buy it. Okay, then um, complete this sentence for me. The only team that can beat Leinster in the Heineken Cup are... Toulouse. Well, well, it depends what Saracens 
depends what Saracens, how Saracens focus up, but I would say Toulouse and Saracens. Toulouse, Racing. Uh, Saracens is a monster. Um, Three of them in one group. That's true. Um, not Claremont on after last week's show. On the performance that Claremont put in, that's not a serious... That's not a serious uh, championship winning team. No championship winning team just go over and lies down. It's not that they lost. It's how absolutely appalling they were. It's just a dreadful team who couldn't get up for the match at all. Your your list is good because I mean if Leicester had it, if Leicester were in if Leicester were playing anyway decently, or Leicester not even in the competition. Um, you'd have to go. Ooh, you know Leicester might do it as well. So I think that idea of pedigree makes a huge difference. Also having a home fixture makes a huge difference like when when Leinster won it two seasons ago they had the good fortune as it turns out in hindsight to play a quarterfinal at home against Saracens which means that they couldn't they couldn't draw Saracens away it was it was the absolute best time beat them and they're gone so you don't get them in the pool and beat them and you sort of oh we'll see you again it's like you beat them and they're gone and I think any team playing Leinster will that ends up in a similar situation will, will think exactly you're going Ooh, I don't fancy a best of three here um so Leinster went to the leaders of the top Cators and Leon did exactly what Leon do and it wasn't good enough. Leinster put up a defensive stand at the end of the first half, which reminded me of uh, Argentina beating France in the opening game of the 2007 World Cup yeah. where France threw the cavalry at the Argentinian goal line and didn't get over it and they never came back. Um uh, they've got two games coming up against Northampton, including the uh, fucking Christmas jumper special in, in the Aviva Stadium. I can see them winning six out of six in this group and having the best draw in the quarterfinals. I mean, yeah, they're impressive. They look so complete at the moment. They were impressive against... I didn't think they looked complete. They're impressive against Leon. I felt that uh, with half the benefit of hindsight... One of the selections, I wouldn't have made one. Devin Toner, I thought, improved the team when he came on for Scott Fardy. Like Scott played, Scott Fardy played well. I felt that it was a game in which Devin Toner would have, would have thrived. Wasn't played at a huge lick. It was an awful lot of set pieces, uh, particularly line-its. Um, Leon won 18 out of 18 line-its on their own throw, spoiled two of Leinster's. So all told, they won 20 line-its, which is a phenomenal return. You know, 100 whatever, 10%, I suppose, 100% in their own ball and 10% of Leinster's. Uh, they played an incredibly strict game plan with three kicking backs, two, two, uh, two both their halves kicked, their 12, Charlie Nantai kicked brilliantly, and Thomas Arnold, their fullback, kicked it. Three guys, their 10, 12, and 15, who could punt the ball 50 metres in the air, uh, 50 metres in length while in the air, I mean. Uh, they're able to pressure Leinster's line out. They're able to take all of their own line outs, front, middle, tail, and a very strong mall. Leinster conceded at least four mall penalties. Uh, and we're lucky not to have one man further sent to the bin. Um, I hadn't seen a 10-man game plan adhere to uh, that strictly since probably <laughs> World Cup semi-final <laughs> but, uh, by South Africa. And <clears throat> but previous to that, I thought that, I thought that had sort of uh, gone out of the game at the top level of professional rugby is really interesting to see it and how effective it can be. 
uh, they've lost very few games. I think they'd only lost one game in the top Couture going into that. I think they were eight and one. And they're a team who are composed of what you could fairly call journeyman pros. A lot of players who have played with Leinster players would have been familiar with them from having played in Claremont, uh, like Raphael Schaum, or having played in Toulon, like Chucky, Virgil Bruni, or Carl Ferns, who had played in Lyon quite a while now. Previously played for Bath. And I, I feel that it was a really good test for Leinster. There was no glamour to the game. There was no massive hype. Who are Leon? You know, most people are saying. And uh, it was not an easy watch. Like, it was a tough, diligent game with a few line breaks, but uh, a very good result for Leinster. Especially so, seeing as they had, you know, three 23-year-olds or 22-year-olds and 23-year-olds in, in, the, in the pack and James Ryan, Max Deegan and Ronan Kelleher. Uh, the latter two who I, I felt came through the game reasonably well. But I, what struck me about the, the Leinster win was how little emotional energy they seemed to spend uh, beating the team that's top of the top 14 in, in, their, home, in their home patch when it, it looked to be, as you were saying, like the way they played, and they really stuck to the script, and that should be enough. And I'm not saying that Leinster were, you know, uh, they were really happy to win it, but they didn't they didn't spill their guts to do it. It was just like this is what you do, like to to win tournaments. The importance of getting a home draw. Like if you think of Leinster going over to play Cast, much the same. Cast with a sort of a, a team of no stars, a really good home record really tough team to, you know, like in, in good form, really good set pieces. And a lot of people like giving out about Leinster losing that match at the time. And then in hindsight, you go, like, nobody was in cast. Yeah. Team won the top 14 that season. Exactly. Yeah, like it's, um, but champion team, like they're able to go down and do it. And like Saracens are really similar. Toulouse are really similar. Maybe Toulouse aren't as good as Saracens and Leinster. But the reason I, I go to the emotional thing is like Gatland was interviewed recently. He's promoting his book. Joe Malloy was interviewing him on the Monday night off the ball. And he was talking about like the Aussie team in, when was that test series? 2017? The Lions one? 2013. 2013, yeah. Um, in the second test, how, like Corwell crying before the match and the Lions beat them. And he was thinking, oh, there's no way these guys can back it up in the third test. Like that was their game. And... You know, talking then about England beating New Zealand, and he's saying, oh, "This is you know something similar." And I'm sure he's had other observations in the intervening six years. And he just goes, like, "It's very difficult to back up, um, like one really big emotional high again. You sort of need to play within yourself." Like again, to refer to the Richie McCaw audience that we have, McCaw talks about building your way through a tournament. That yeah, you have to kind of psychologically sustain yourself for different challenges and be able to meet those and play in different ways but not to like completely spill your guts yeah, when there's to, still when there's still rounds left to do not to overcommit. yeah and that that was what was the most impressive thing to my mind from Leinster was that it was all biz now the other thing is it did lead me to ask the question who is the best tight end in Ireland not Tyg Furlong. I said it. I said it. 
But yeah, so the best tight head in Ireland, to my mind, is Andrew Porter playing in a tight furlong shaped hole. And I think it's, I think it's one of the things. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, what stage these might get published. The report cards, maybe maybe over Christmas. Yeah, say, probably uh, Christmas at this stage. As a, as a collection box of. Uh, <laughs> but that's about just in time for you festival shoppers. Just 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 release them all on Christmas morning. Gorge yourself. You won't have to talk to your family at all. <laughs> Gorge yourself in the only articles we'll publish all year. But how well Furlong played in some matches and how poorly he played in other matches. And I think, spoiler alert, but I mean, to save you reading all of these articles, whether they get published or not, how difficult it is for people to to criticise Furlong. Like, he plays so well so often. He's really likeable. He's from Wexford with the farming background. So, like, and he's from Leinster. So, like, you know, Leinster got to love him. No one can hate him from, like, he's not a D4 guy. So... And as I say, like he's sound, he gives really good interviews. So, like everyone loves Tyke Furlong, and it makes it difficult to kind of point out that you go, oh man, like he, he didn't play well. Like he played particularly poorly against Japan, and Joe Moody ran him over, uh, ran over him for the All Blacks in what was crystallised for me that entire game. Yeah, Joe Moody ran over him a couple of times, unfortunately. I, I the sort of nagging feeling that he was, he doesn't look a hundred percent fit to me he looks sort of unhappy when he's on the pitch as well I don't know normally there's a few uh grins and stuff from him but he he looks pretty miserable at the moment and he's he's not playing well and you and you come back to this idea of form and that guys are going to play themselves in so like like Tyke Furlong's a class player like Tyke Furlong has many more great afternoons ahead of him but right at the moment himself and Robbie Henshaw are not playing well Oh yeah, absolutely. And that doesn't like I've always had this hatred of the phrase "form is temporary, class is permanent." Well, you know, I, well I love it. I always go to it. Fucking permanent. <laughs> Does that mean like lads? Like permanent means forever. So class is permanent. So lads will still be playing when they're ninety-three. Let me tell no, you my they, story about Hebs in his trench coat <laughs> and his shiny they, shit. <laughs> they, they won't be playing when they're ninety-three. It's a nice sentiment that guys who are real class can always turn back the years and whatever. What is fucking nonsense? You know? So you're not giving Rob Kearney his 97, 98, 99th and 100th caps? Listen, listen. (laughs) (laughs) That's what a class is. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think he will yet. I don't, unfortunately for him, like I think he's got a couple from maybe three from the Lions, uh, which probably brings him up. Like on the Jamie Heaslip count. Jamie Heaslip had 95 Irish caps and, and five Lions caps, got him into the century. I think Robert has 95 Irish caps and I think three Lions caps, so it brings him to 98. But I, I don't think, I think his race is wrong. Going from what, uh, going from the evidence of the, the weekend, that Matt Healy played out of position at 15 for, for Connors and, and wasn't great. Uh, but the other two fullbacks, Addison and Haley, were were both very good. Um, just to drop back to uh, Andrew Porter for a second, during the uh, whole World Cup, Andy Dunn in particular was convinced that John Ryan was a much superior player to yeah. Andrew Porter, particularly in terms of, well, the tight head's first responsibility being the scrum. Um, I always found that quite puzzling. I thought, I, I've never seen Andrew Porter let a scrum down, even in his second favourite front, front row position. Well, I don't know, no, that... that I remember hearing the story of that uh, one of, can't remember the name of the prop who it was, but somebody that uh, Andy Dunn used to play with at Leinster. And he'd said that he, he raced John Ryan as a scrummager. So 
not that Jermaine had scrummage against John Ryan, but he was a former pro prop and said that. But Dunner, like, literally kept on um, beeping that horn. And, you know, there's more people than Joe Schmidt selecting the, the side when it comes to gauging who's a good scrummager and who's not a good scrummager. If, if John Ryan was that much better than Andrew Porter as a pure scrummager, then John Ryan would more likely have started against Wales in the 2018 Grand Slam game in that in that campaign and he would have started ahead of him on the bench like I don't think that holds any water I think that Ryan is a good player you know goodish player uh, and Porter is physically a better athlete and uh, is you know certainly his his equal as a scrummager would you say it seems to me from the outside to be similar to say the bit where all of a sudden so like crowd favorite Keen Healy was overtaken by Jack McGrath. Suddenly, Jack McGrath was the number one loose head in Ireland, and it, Keane had to go and get it back. Um, it's and, exactly and it. Keane went and got it back, and like Jack's form was stuttered after the Lions and various things, and he's moved to Ulster in the end, and he's like, that's a good place for him to be competing. That 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 other that that's the other word that I'd forgotten about, and I was thinking about during the week. So between Conor Murray. Robbie Henshaw and Tyg Furlong were three of Ireland's prominent lines in 2017. And Sean O'Brien was a fourth. So it's not conclusive. Like there's, there's guys who've gone on that tour that have subsequently played well. But I do think that I... Is it emotion? Is it, is it just being, like, physically being driven outside of a sort of an Irish requirement? Like, you know, you're given your, your conditioning requirements for the lines and you sort of go, well, this is the biggest thing I have on this year. This is the way I'm going to target it. But... Um, all three of those guys, well, four if you count Shawnee, uh, have seen you know pretty significant drops in form. Shawnee and Murray more obviously than the other two, but just at the moment after the World Cup, Henshaw, Henshaw and Tyg Furlong just look flat. Oh, it's pancakes. Yeah, you know, so you go lines, and then you go down to Australia, and then you go World Cup, and then you're just like, oh man, digs like a demented mole there. The cloud didn't like that. Referee blows for half time. Despite South Africa winning it, uh, the World Cup from what, 18 months out, and people just sort of going, oh, the four year cycle is over. The four year cycle is not over <laughs> based on recent appointments. So Dave Rennie has been appointed as the coach of Australia four, four years, years out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with a four-year contract, and Fabien Galtier will coach France with a cast of thousands. It's Les Miserables uh, en masse. Uh, but I think the most significant, well, the most eye-catching for me was Rafa Ibanez as his appoint as as his manager and as the French team manager rather than Galtier's manager. And Martin Williams in the same week was appointed as manager of Wales and. Two guys that played in the 2007 World Cup, and I think the Williams Williams even played in. No, Warby was the World Cup in 2011. But like, so two guys who played in the 2007 World Cups are very much. Well, I think Martin gener- Williams went to 2011. I think he went to 2011. Like a generational shift in uh, the Blazer Brigade. Two centurions. Two centurions, and like pros. Whereas Ireland's manager, like, can you name Ireland's manager? I can. It's the lovely Paul Dean. Absolutely. Paul uh, Dean was in the uh, Europe Pride video. The uh, 1985 Triple Crown. One of our favourite players growing up. Yeah. <laughs> 22 years 
different. So Paul Dean went to the 1987 World Cup, rode in the 2007 World Cup, and then toured with the Lions in 1989. So completely of a different generation. And I think it was very low key as a manager. So again, trawling around for, you know, the scar of Ireland's World Cup and scratching every available surface. Uh, you do wonder, what if Ireland had had a different manager? What if they had had a manager who was a more experienced coach, be it like Declan Kidney or be it Mike Ruddock? Would, would, how would that have worked? Particularly Ruddock, given his place in the domestic game and given his success with with under 20s teams at tournaments. Like, how, how would that work? You know, but the coach would have to be comfortable with them. Um, or do you go for a guy who is recently re- like who who would be your candidates of well, recently think- retired players who would be suitable for management? I was thinking of the New Zealand setup where they have Grant Fox as a selector, uh, which I think is really interesting. It's sort of old fashioned, but like it's it's uh, Steve Hansen and Andy and Foster, and then Grant Fox, who's not like he doesn't get into a tracksuit and come down you know, watch somebody kicking the goals. He's there as a selector. Yeah, he's uh, an independent selector. Yeah, and there to as a sounding board, which uh, idiosyncratic maybe to New Zealand. You know, they have this, I think, unrivaled wealth of rugby information just knocking around the islands. But who would I have selected as a manager? It's a, it's a good question. I hadn't given it much thought. Uh, I think... It depends on how how far. Come back to me. Talk about something else, and I'll, I'll think of. Well, the thing that stru- strikes me is, uh, for example, I remember the manager of Munster used to be Sean Payne, and there was no manager at Leinster. It was the the committee. This guy used to be. Didn't <laughs> But the professional players committee did, did the No, it was a guy used to be was the manager. manager. And that, that that role was created because uh Checker wanted a job for Chris Whitaker. So there was there the same level the same standing for that role of manager in both clubs or was it Oh who knows what the manager does? <laughs> like Yeah. Do you get so, the sandwiches, get the coffees? Do they do they pick the team? <laughs> who knows? Because Matt Williams was um he had referenced the uh, Grant Fox role that um, exists in New Zealand of the independent. Oh, what selector. did he say? Well, he was saying that they, Ireland and Australia both needed to work towards a kind of a unified model approach towards playing the game and having have more coordination between how the national team plays and how all the provincial team plays. And I'm like, is that not what New Sephora's remit is? Or is there just not certain elements of the four provincial squads in Ireland not being that controllable because like essentially like there's just too many people, there's too many different um, competing motives, you know, as in like there's four coaches all looking to keep their jobs by winning games, not by playing as subsets. Of I, I don't, I don't buy that idea whatsoever. No, I that don't buy you that can, you can coordinate that many players and that many well, coaches the same fucking moves. to all play in the same sort of way. Like, you can you can certainly concentrate on raising skill level, raising fitness level, in improving technique, improving game awareness. Like all, all of that stuff is, it's hardly unique. Yeah, that's called like that's good coaching. That's a function of good coaching. And that's like that's that's professional. That sorry, it like all all of that stuff is hardly unique. It's, but that that's professionalism. 
um, and you, you're concentrating more on the sort of the micro elements and it's the idea of a rising tide rather than coordinating like a Busby, Berkeley, you know, synchronized swimming sort of thing in the water. It's just like, let, let, the, let the water rise, man. Um, so what does Nisa Fora do that a manager like isn't doing? What's appoints people and moves guys around. Like, I mean, the manager is a match day role. Or he's 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 match day and he's squad weeks. Yeah. So like you know what what do you and like you know what do you so he should be a sounding with sounding board for the coach as well. A guy who is nominally at the same level of him in that he doesn't wear a tracksuit. You know he's not subservient to him. If you're an assistant coach, you're an assistant to the coach, the head coach. So while Andy Farrell is a valuable sounding board, he's there as an assistant to Joe Schmidt. A manager could be a different. Uh, it could be and, and should be a different level, uh, different but equal. You know, Don Lennon is the, is the guy that springs to mind. I know Donald's older, but he's he's been a manager before. And I think that's guy, I was trying to think of another, another person who strikes me as having both coaching experience and the gravitas uh, and, you know, the experience of, the highest level of pressure in international rugby. It's hard to do. And I, so you talked about Champagne being down a monster. I thought you were going to say uh, Neil O'Donovan. Because so like Champagne, to my mind, was yeah. sort of out of his depth. He was a guy who'd been a player who'd all of a sudden moved to be a manager. And it's a really different skill set. And like, does he have the personality? Does he have the experience to do it? Maybe he does now, but I don't think he did then. Um, so a guy like Brian McLaughlin, for example, would be a nominee for a manager of a guy who's coached at like head coach at a professional level and like has enough wisdom, has enough experience. If he wants to do it, it's that sort of guy. And you can't like, there's, I, I think you need to have coached at a serious level to, to contribute to being an international. You probably need to have been an international. I think it would certainly help. Like if you look at Ibanez and Martin Williams, um, like you, you need to know what the pressure points are in a squad, uh, you know, uh, being around in a tournament. Uh, so you, you, like you're talking, like Paul O'Connell would be a possibility for Ireland manager because he's coached at Stade Francais. He's obviously been a brilliant captain for Ireland. He'd be a great guy to bring personality-wise in. Is that the role that he wants to do in, in rugby? I don't know. Does he, does he want to go back and coach? But like... He could certainly live in Ireland and be the Ireland team manager and do a few of the things around it um, if if that's what he wants to do. But it, it, it would be somebody like that. Rory Best will be somebody in the future. I know this sounds like we're speaking who used to be captain of Ireland. And that is a lot of what you're looking for in a person. is a person who is a leader, a person who, has, who understands the pressure of performing uh, at incredible, and who's been in most of the situations in which the players are going to find themselves in. David Humphreys, Connor O'Shea would be similar ones. But these are names which come up. And like I say, I sound like the person who goes, who are they looking at? Oh, it's fucking Jake White and Robbie Deans, you know? But there is, it's a limited, you're looking for a limited, uh, you're looking for a limited, you're looking at realistically a limited group of people. And you've got to be a union man. There's no there's no room for renegades or guys who speak their mind or any of that sort of stuff. Like you, you are you are the union man. Like you're a company yeah. man. You're the, you're the good sir. You're the good soldier. Yeah, you're an institutional man. Yeah, like so we're not getting checking, huh? Not getting checking. Not getting Nazi. Uh, 
I'm not getting Oxy. Scott Johnson is already <laughs> mystifyingly got that job <laughs> in Australia. Um, you know, does it, does it, I think it, it should be an Irishman. I don't think that, uh, I think it, it would be especially apt with, uh, with Andy Farrell and Mike Cat as the sort of the two senior coaches now in the, in the Irish setup and that there would be somebody, uh, I'm not I'm not really huge on this in terms of coaching. I think you just get whoever the best available coaches. It doesn't matter about nationality, but this is more of a this is a balancing role. It's just it's, it's when when you mentioned Farrell and Mike Cat, I cast my mind back to I don't know whose game plan that was, but it wasn't mine. When like Pat Whelan was the manager. And it was high profile when Pat Whelan was doing it. And before him, Noisy Murphy was the manager. Yeah, with Jerry they Murphy, were like big names. the manager role, but they were big names, but like the manager role used to be really, really prominent. And then it was Mick Carney who like did a good job by all appearances, but wasn't high profile, like wasn't a former international. Most guys outside Lansdowne wouldn't be able to name him. Uh, and then it was Dino who does have high profile in rugby, but most people couldn't name the Irish manager. They don't know that Dino was. So I was, I was, I was hoping that you'd leave that hang in the air a bit so people in that podcast could go, oh, but no, it's gone. Paul Dean, if you didn't get it in time, tough luck. You didn't know it. Sorry. If we don't know what we're missing from the manager's role in particular, maybe it's not that important. We just told you we're not listening. No, you were asking about Nusa for it. We're not talking about Nusa for his role. We're talking about what the manager was doing. I think that that would be, if, if, no, that's, if I, that's the vein you're going down. I mean, like, none of us know whether Paul Dean's doing a good or bad job. So, like... That was the most silence ever. What's you know? How important is manager? No, listen, oh, I just want to. I just want to work. Me this listen, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say this is my thesis, right? Uh, the idea is that maybe Joe Schmidt got too caught up in his own line of thinking that nobody questioned him amongst his own coaching staff, which I think is a plausible criticism. I would I don't be surprised guess. if Andy Farrell didn't question him. But go on. Yeah. So my my idea would be is if there is a Lenehan figure who Schmidt would listen to. Uh, because there is an equal weight to his role. That would be something which uh, I think it's something worth looking at. I think rather than you know trying to get all four provinces playing together, which is a, a Sisyphean task, the implementation of a single person in a single role would be a much easier thing to accomplish. I, th I think for, for stuff like the manager, is there is no real job spec. It is very much a management type of role. So if you've got a coach like Joe Schmidt who's very intense, part of the manager's job is to somehow lessen that intensity at a time. It's to sort of, it's, it's to be a pressure valve. And I got like, I mean, Don Lennon would be a really good example. Like, you know, like it, it's a Mr. Rugby. Again, I go back to that idea. It's a union man. Like it's a real rugby through and lifer. through lifer like you you gotta love the game it's gotta be like if you weren't managing ireland you'd be down in a committee room in your you might be doing it anyway but wearing a tie around your head up at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> buying points for everyone left well it's yeah, the reason i was saying perhaps there wasn't that significance in that all the uh appointments you announced i thought perhaps one of the most significant, you didn't name check it specifically there, was that Sean Edwards is going to be working in France uh, and Sean Edwards is not French. So I think that's somewhat significant. That they're yeah, it's some, a good point. Getting some outside help for the first time and not like a, I don't know, I think Sean Edwards 
is like a tough northern english like league background guy so it's it's almost it's very very different to french like i know Galtier is parisian but like the south of france is the heartland of rugby that's a long way away from the north of england from wigan from tiny shorts and norweb sponsored jerseys <laughs> um france have so much talent if they had the discipline you know they'd be fearsome they would have been in a semi-final if they'd had any discipline yeah and uh, they are, I think, a, a talented side. It was uh, Scott Spedding was doing the commentary for Montpellier Gloucester. Montpellier Gloucester. Uh, and he referenced the number of guys who are coming from winning an under 20 World Cup. That is, uh, the, the system has started to turn out successful French teams again. Uh, and if it is the cast of thousands that enables a lot of very talented players. To play well together and if that cast of thousands includes sean edwards and maybe a couple of other coaches somewhere down the line who are bringing uh, a, a different mentality to the french team uh, i think we'll all be going back to being scared of france again we really could be and it will be looking at these halcyon years when it was ireland and wales were able to win six nations as oh they were the glory days because i remember and you remember as well the crunch when once that game was over, this Five Nations was decided. Whoever won that game was going to win the Five Nations. It was either going to be England or France. Who should win the, the Six Nations every year? One of those two sides. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you a promotion. Welcome aboard, Mr. Manager. Wow, a Mr. Manager. Well, manager. We, we would just say manager. And you can hire an employee if you need one. Do you think I need one? Don't look at me, Mr. Manager. Right, it's up to me now. I'm Mr. Manager. Manager, we we we, we just say. Uh, I know, but you just doesn't matter who. No, I don't know what I expected. <laughs>